welcome to Second World Problems, the first best world building podcast. This week, I am uh, not Draco Malfoy, Lucius Malfoy, before he was Lucius Malfoy. And as always, well, I'm joined by, uh, who, who am I joined by this week? I don't remember who I said last time. I, I guess I'll be Ramus Lupin before he was Ramus Lupin. Yeah, that sounds fair enough. Before we kick off today's episode, just a little, this episode's coming out a tad late because the original, this is a re-record, it got uh, corrupted in a data transfer and unfortunately we had to re-record, but uh, it should still be all there, it's all written down, so I imagine it's all the same information and the same amount of fun content you're going to consume, so yeah. Yep, and if I don't remember anything that we added to it last time, so it'll just remain a secret that no one ever gets to hear if there was extra stuff that we talked about. Yeah, bonus content that no one will ever know about. No. The good news is, Morgan, that you've had time to ruminate on this because you've already done it once, so maybe you'll have new insights. Oh, we'll see. We'll see. Or the same insights. We'll see, yeah. I guess. Well, insights on what? What are we covering this episode? This episode, we're doing Dragonheart from 1996, the only valid movie of the Dragonheart franchise. <laughs> yes. Uh, last episode, we uh, quickly we won't go into it, but there is a number of sequels that we uh, we weren't totally aware of this movie uh but they're they're not important only ever watch this one and that's what we're going to be focusing on today i'm sure we'll go into it again but um yeah we're we're doing the only only one you should need to watch um so just for a bit of background as we said Dragonheart was um made in 1996 so it's a bit old school and it's a medieval fantasy adventure film directed by rob cohen and written by charles edward pogue it stars Dennis Quaid as Bowen, an English knight with a very American accent who becomes a dragon slayer after the prince he trained Ainan becomes an evil king upon being saved from death by sharing a dragon's heart. And it has Sean Connery as the voice of Draco the dragon who gives said heart to evil prince who then becomes evil king and then following that becomes the last dragon alive after Bowen spends 12 years on a quest for vengeance. Good on you, Bowen. Yep. He uh, devoted his life to something... Noble? I don't know. I don't, no, I don't think. I'm not sure how I feel about that. <laughs> After battling to a stalemate, both Draco and Bowen run a dragon slaying con in which Bowen pretends to kill Draco for money, and then they team up to fight Ainan, whose shared heart with Draco grants him immortality. Not good if you're an evil king, as long as the dragon, well, good if you are the evil king, but not good for everyone else, as long as the dragon lives. Um, it was nominated for the Academy Award for Best Visual Effects and various other awards in 1996 and 1997. That, that about covers it. Yeah. Visual effects are not bad. Holds up. Sort of. Um, so the world oh, is sort of a mix between early medieval Britain and mythic medieval Britain. So it does the usual thing of fantasy where it has an undetermined time period, but takes like the elements of medieval that the directors like and just sort of mashes it together with some mythic elements to make it more fantasy because of that it is it is very formula fantasy it doesn't when you sit down to watch it you know exactly what you're getting and that is what you get you get nothing you get nothing less and nothing more it's just it follows exactly what you would expect of this what the film presents to you in the first what two minutes you're like okay i know where we're going here as we've talked a little bit about, it has more than two. Originally I said two, but I did learn in the episode that has now been destroyed that it has more than two straight-to-TV sequels, none of which I've ever seen and will never see. Um, they all sound bad. And also the CGI for the dragon, pretty good, considering, like, reasonably good. I've definitely seen things recently that are worse. Oh, for sure, for sure. So good on them. They, they really nailed that that early mix of like CGI and practical effects. It's, it's not the worst thing I've ever seen. No, it's, it's very watchable still. It also, it feeds into the, like, you know what you get, like it's not, they're not doing anything revolutionary. So it works for the, what the movie is, which is trash, but the sort of trash <laughs> that is good to watch <laughs> sometimes. Good trash. Good trash. So it is set in um, Saxon, England. And we know this because only because it says that, Einan is a Saxon prince. So the Anglo-Saxon period in Britain spans approximately the six centuries from 410 to 1066 AD. The period used to be known as the Dark Ages, mainly because the written sources for the early years of the Saxon, Saxon invasion are scarce and generally incomplete. Um, however, it is now usually termed the Early Middle, Middle Ages or Early Medieval Period by historians who currently study it. 
It was a time of war, of, break, of the breaking up of, the, of Roman Britannia into several separate kingdoms, of religious conversion, and after the 1790s, of continual battles against Viking invaders. I just like to say that I'm still playing Assassin's Creed Valhalla at the moment, and it it's set in sort of the time after this, in like a sort of Saxon period, but like not quite the early Saxon sort of like in between. Just makes me think of that. Um, it's also set sort of in this idea of mythic England, which we have vaguely talked about before in episodes where we covered King Arthur. So it's an England that only exists within myth, legend, and folktale. In terms of fiction or literature, a tale is usually classified as mythic if it involves the presence of gods, divine, or semi-divine characters or heroes. In this case, Draco the Dragon functions as both an element of fantasy, the thing which brings the impossible into the everyday world, which is what makes fantasy fantasy, um, and an element of the mythic through both the presence of dragons in myth, so we know that they're mythological creatures, so he is a mythic being, but also through the connection in the film of dragons with life and the constellation they go to when they die, similar to the raising of heroes into stars in Greek mythology. So it, it has like a double tier of like associate dragons with myth from the fact that they are mythical beings, creatures that do not exist but are fantastic, um, and then also that there is sort of like this myth that the dragons are involved with in the film, which is sort of um, divine. It has a sense of divinity about it because they get to go to the special the special place in the sky when they die and, yeah, be all special in ways that humans aren't special. Become a star. Yeah. Change the constellations. I think it'd be really cool to like. It's like I. It's 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 funny. I think it'd be really cool to be like a star when you die. Like I always think like the. I just think they make it look really good in movies. Like I like the way they do it in Dragonheart, and then also like in the only good part of Thor: The Dark World when they do that and Frigga like they set the boat on fire when for Frigga's funeral, and then like she turns into stardust and goes up into the sky. It's so good. Yeah, it just love of looks very. Humor. Yeah, it just looks very visually arresting. Yeah. But yeah, that is nice. We did recently rewatch that movie, and it's one of the one of the highlights of that movie is that moment. It's not a lot to to love in that movie. <laughs> so in the film, it gives us the the history of dragons. So the film says that before the race of mortal men appeared, dragons were the dominant species. When humans appeared on the earth, the wisest of the dragons took pity on them, but saw that they had the potential to do great good. He gathered all of the dragons together and made them swear and oath that they would always watch over mankind and help them help them to grow in wisdom. Not long afterwards, the old dragon died, and at that moment of his death, the dragon's heaven, the constellation Draco, appeared in the sky. But the dragons have, have to earn their place in heaven. The spirits of the dragons who fulfill their vow to watch over and help humans become stars in the constellation. However, the spirits of dragons who fail to fulfill that pledge or choose to follow the path of evil vanish from existence when they pass. Which is pretty, that's pretty gnarly, that there's a sort of, the dragons are held to an honour code. And then that they also pass an honour code on to humans, which is what we're going to talk about next. Because the film goes on and on about the old code, which Bowen is supposed to follow, strays from, and then follows again at the end of the film. Classic, you know, straying from the path and then returning to the path because, you know, you've got a moral duty to fulfil. A knight is sworn to valour. That sort of stuff. Yeah. We'll get, we'll go through the whole thing. You can do it in that voice if you want. <laughs> I don't know. That seems, I, we'll see. We'll see how it go. Okay. The code um, was a set of rules followed by knights, which were meant to maintain order in the world. So dragons and humans were on good terms in the days, in the days of King Arthur. Um, and that's sort of when the old code was solidified. Merlin, a powerful wizard and the first of the druids. Um, again, I had this rant in the first one and I'm going to do it again, but... We don't know what druids were. We don't know what their function was. Like, it was probably religious. It was definitely political, but we don't actually know what they did. We don't know how they were chosen. We really don't know what druids are. So, like, saying someone's a druid doesn't really mean anything because we have no, no, no notion aside from what we've made up about druids, about who the druids actually were in society. They just didn't write anything down. They should have kept a detailed history. Well, the thing is the Romans so completely, they pissed off the Romans so much that they so completely destroyed them that there really isn't much information left on them. Yeah, don't um, don't cross those Romans. That's sort of how we know that they were probably political in some way because it would take a lot for, I mean, it doesn't take a lot to get the Romans to get pissed off, but the fact that they completely wipe you from existence sort of says that you did something pretty bad. Yeah, they, they don't do that just willy-nilly. 
bad for the Romans, could be good for everyone else, you know. It was a difficult time back then. <laughs> so Merlin kept, com- kept company with the dragons, and together they helped Arthur bring peace to the entire island of Britain. When Arthur founded the Order of the Knights of the Round Table, the dragons taught them a code of honour, which then became called the Old Code. So Morgan, do you want to give it a go? <laughs> it's written down for you. I'm going to channel... Um... That's the, the spirit of Arthur from from the movie. Um, so you just mean the statue of Arthur that has a voice coming out? Yeah, of it. yeah, yeah. So I'll be nice, big, booming, and there'll probably be uh, an echo that I'll let in post. Uh, <laughs> it's raining. That'd be really poetic. Yeah, that would be. Uh, I'm inside, but you know, you never know. Mm. <clears throat> Ready? <clears throat> a knight is sworn to valor. His heart knows only virtue. His blade defends the helpless. His might upholds the weak. His word speaks only truth, and his wrath undoes the wicked. That was awesome. That was actually really good. Thank you. You you would you make a great Arthur statue with a voice coming out of it in Dragonheart. Yeah, I'll add it to my uh, resume. Yeah, really good at being Arthur statue from Dragonheart. <laughs> it's very specific, but you know I've honed Speci- my talent. Special skills. Everyone's got to have a niche. So yeah, that's their old code. It's it's pretty standard. I would say for a night, you know, it's all about moral duty and defending the helpless and service to the people. That's that's pretty norm, pretty pretty normal for nights. The film also sort of goes into the idea of good kingship vaguely. Um, I'm going to talk a bit more about it than the film does. Um, so fantasy as a whole often comments on kingship through the depiction of the environment and restoring the sovereign is a common element of fantasy fiction, especially like like the quest genre. So like, for instance, in Lord of the Rings, um, the land starts to heal when Aragorn is able to take back his throne and becomes king of Gondor. Then that signals the renewal of the age um, or the start of a new age and things start to heal and people start to go back to normal life and there's safety and there's stability. So often the results of this theme is that everything is in dire straits and the lack of a proper king has the land in shambles. And that's often depicted through elements such as banditry and justice instability and also like literal dying land. So like the land, like there's famines or like harvest fails, things like that. Like the land literally dies because the king's not doing a good job. Not, not good enough. Not a good king. (laughs) Restoring the proper ruler makes everything better, and with the proper ruler follows healing as part of, like, the traditional happy ending. Um, the other thing you could have is, like, the proper ruler fails, and then the ki- and then the land is fully destroyed. But that's less that's less common. Usually it's, you get the whole resolution. Um, so just governance and healing is also in- interwoven with the occurrence of a marriage or coronation as both celebration of triumph and signals a return to how things should be. So there is no literal, like, scourge upon the land in Dragonheart, um, but it does have many of the elements to provide the sort of the vaguest of commentaries on good kingship and tyrannical kingship. So, like, you get uh, Ainan, who's, like, the bad king, but then at the end you get this idea of Bowen becoming the good king and the idea that things get better. We'll go, I'll go a bit more into it. Um, I would say that in Dragonheart it is mostly employed as a trope for plot reasons. That's not necessarily a bad thing. The fact that it's a formula and it's well-known and it's recognised means that it resonates in some way, but it's also, like, it's not expanding on anything that hasn't been done before. Like, there's no commentary underneath it about what actually makes a good king or an effective leader, um, mainly because, obviously, also for plot reasons, because we want to we do the fun stuff with the dragon. Einan's example of bad leadership is just being, like, a selfish dick. So all anyone else has to do to be considered a good king is, like, just not be a selfish dick. That seems pretty simple to follow, you'd think? Well, that's the thing, isn't it? It's simple, but that's because they obviously wanted to spend more time doing fun stuff with the dragon. You can't blame them for that. But it does mean that there isn't, like, you're not getting a treatise on, like, what it really takes to be a good leader. (laughs) Yeah, it's uh, don't don't be this guy. Yeah. And that's, that's all it takes. Um, so then uh, Bowen and Kara get together at the end and ascend the throne, and there's obviously a, an implied marriage. Um, so that sort of fulfills, again, those expectations. And then what follows, um, according to the priest the priest character who was, who's recording everything, the story as it happens being the narrator, 
is an era of justice and brotherhood, golden years warmed by other unworldly light. And when things became the most difficult, Draco's star shone more brightly for all of us who knew where to look. So it does give in, it does give that idea of like um, when a good king ascends the throne, everything's like everything starts to get better. You like you, there's the return of justice. There's the return of like friendliness and niceness and goodness to the land. Like once there's a good king, everything becomes good. Peace in our time. Absolutely. So it, it is very. Um, formulaic in that way but um it's a popular structure because it can also be used to like demonstrate much deeper things it's just not in this film (laughs) um so firstly uh in terms of history and also in terms of medieval fantasy like fiction and also fashion i assume i meant actual fashion in terms of like the costuming because i probably did um there's basically a mess of different things going on Ainan is, as I've said, described as a Saxon prince, but Bowen is an English knight. So that only works within a specific time of early medieval English history um, because England only became a thing at a certain point in history. I mean, it still works even for like a medieval fantasy where you don't have, things don't have to work because it's a fantasy. It does still sort of work. But I'm just sort of nitpicking some of the things that like make it a bit not quite like lean into the fantasy in terms of the history so like for instance also ashlyn or aisling or aislin whatever the queen's name is um she's described as celtic which is also not out of the realm of possibility for the supposed sort of time period that they're going for but in the early years of anglo-saxon reign they tended to marry high-ranked ladies from other parts of britain um, rather than outside of Britain, since there were like seven separate kingdoms that made up the country before it became England. So that's like you get all the different parts of England. Uh, so like it was easier to marry and more um, worthwhile to marry a high-ranked lady from another part of Britain from like, so you're, you're in like Wessex, it's easier to marry a woman from Mercia because then you get an alliance between two different parts of the same country as opposed to a country that's outside of that. Separated by the sea. Yeah. This still sort of works, but it's just like in, in certain periods it wouldn't. But it doesn't matter because it's fantasy. So like, <laughs> um, but these are just things that like I was like, oh, well, I guess, about the film. Um, so the – also costuming, because I've written fashion. I'm sure I meant fiction. But um, costuming is a bit – uh, I, I, I wouldn't necessarily, like, I don't want to say it's not accurate. I don't want to say it's accurate, but it is like a bit, uh, what's the word? Not well constructed, not in like a material, like, yes, for like Ainan and like the queen, who gives a fuck? But when you look at Bowen and his chain mail is so obviously like plastic, you're like, oh, it's not even metal. It doesn't look heavy. Like he's it lugging around not. a bunch of chain mail. I mean, not all chainmail, like chainmail didn't have to be heavy, heavy, but it doesn't, it's not metal. So, and you can see that, like you, when they zoom in, it's like, he's got like, <laughs> he's like, um, he's like over armor, like he's got the mail, but then he's got like the black and you can just, it looks like it's studded. But when it, when like you actually look at him, when it zooms in, it's just like sparkly little round bits like the material is just like black with sparkly little round bits on it to make it look like it's got holes in it it's just like (laughs) it just looks super cheap anyway that's my bit so in saxon england the anglo-saxons were originally migrants from northern europe who settled in england in the fifth and sixth centuries Initially comprising many small groups and divided into a number of kingdoms, the Anglo-Saxons were finally joined into a single political realm, the Kingdom of England, during the reign of King Athelstan, which was um, in 19, not 19, what am I doing, 924 to 939. Uh, Before that, there was Kent, which was settled by the Jutes, Mercia, which was like a Midlands kingdom, Northumbria, the people might who might know the monk Bede from like other historical things. He lived and wrote his ecclesiastical his, history of Britain and he was from Northumbria. So that's just a fun little fact. Um, there's East Anglia made up of the Angles. So there's the North, North folk living in modern Norfolk. What a surprise. <laughs> there's the South folk living in Suffolk. Where did that come from? How did we get that? 
The Sun Hu ship burial was found in East Anglia. I mentioned this in in the Corrupted podcast as well. There's a great movie on the Sun Hu ship with um, the guy who plays Voldemort in it called The Dig. The Dig on Netflix. A delightful movie. Highly recommend. Also just got to Sutton Hu in Assassin's Creed Valhalla, so that's a fun thing as well. I'm currently in East Anglia. Yeah, they have like the ship in the ground and then it's got like a, I think it's got like a throne in it or something. Anyway. There was also Essex, which was for the East Saxons. There was Sussex, which is South Saxons. There's Wessex, which is West Saxons. So you're sort of getting the idea that they're not like super creative. (laughs) So Wessex is also where um, King Alfred, the only English English king to ever been called the Great, um, that's where he ruled. And it's his grandson, Athelstan, who was the first to ever truly call himself the king of the English. So well done, Alfred. You did a great job. You ruled Wessex and then your grandson unified what 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 would eventually become the, the, the heir of England. So well done <laughs> to you. Your family line's just killing it. By 850 AD, the Seven Kingdoms had been consolidated into three large Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. So you get Northumbria, Mercia, Mercia and Wessex. Around that time, the Anglo-Saxons also become a Christian people. In terms of language, the Anglo-Saxons spoke the language we now know as Old English, which is an ancestor of modern-day English, bridged by Middle English. Um, Its closest cousins were other Germanic languages such as Old Frisian, Old Norse, and Old High German. Surviving Anglo-Saxon manuscripts from the Anglo-Saxon England show that there were different dialects spoken in different parts of the country, which is normal. So, like, in West... In West Saxony, Northumbria, and Mercia, they all spoke slightly different versions of Old English because that's what happens when you have, like, a culturally sort of diverse region, I guess. Well, not, like, super diverse, but, like, like separate kingdoms. They're going to have their own shit. Um, so Athelstan, we're going to talk about a bit about him. Uh, so he inherited Wessex, Mercia, and Northumbria from family members. So, like, he's already doing pretty well. <laughs> Um, he's got that's three whole kingdoms of England that he gets. Um, and Athelstan's coins and charters describe him as king of the English. Um, his charters also began to describe him as king of Britain and emperor. So, like, he was really going for the whole unification thing. In 937, Athelstan and his brother Edmund defeated a combined force of the kings of Dublin, Scots, and Strathclyde, and others at a place called Brunanburh. His victory was celebrated in a dramatic Old English poem that was copied into the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, and it, it goes like this. So it says, King Athelstan, Lord of Nobles, dispenser of treasure to men, and his brother also, Prince Edmund, again, hilarious. And his brother, Prince Edmund, was there, I guess. <laughs> Won by the sword's edge, undying glory and battle round Brunanburh. They clove the shield wall, hewed the Lindenwood shields with hammered swords. The people of the Scots and the pirates fell doomed. The field grew dark with the blood of men. Never yet in this island before this, by what books tell us and our ancient sages, was a great greatest slaughter of a host made by the edge of the sword. Since the Angles and the Saxons came hither from the east, invading Britain over the broad seas, and the proud assailants, warriors eager for, for glory, overcame the Britons and won a country. Athelstan... Um, in terms of like maintaining a bigger kingdom and a sort of push for unification, secured his power by a combination of military power because you need, if you're going to have a bigger area of land, you need a bigger army to patrol it and police it and also back up any any threats you might get made against your kingship. Yeah, you got to be able to back yourself. So he had um, a combination of military might and then he also secured his power by gifts and diplomacy. So it wasn't all about the war it was that was like sort of that was his yeah his backup and but then like gifts and diplomacy came first um triple threat yeah he is notable for his practice of giving books especially finely decorated gospel gospel books to religious houses including the powerful community of saint cuthbert in the north athelstan also exercised authority at assemblies held across his kingdom at which he issued laws and charters um so he's being he was very active king in terms of like pushing like in, in terms of like building his kingdom, but also like, so not just unifying it, but like building it into a singular thing underneath him. He got stuff done. He sure did. Um, so during the 11th century, so a bit later, Anglo-Saxon England was conquered not once, but twice. The Danish King Canute ousted the native Anglo-Saxon dynasty in 1016, and he and his sons reigned reigned in England until 1042. Then after an interlude during which Edward the Confessor, who was 
the son of Ethelred the Unready um, by his by one of his queens, Queen Emma. So so he held power, and then um, after him there was Harold, the last Anglo-Saxon king, who was then killed at Hastings on the fourteenth of October, ten sixty-six, during the Norman invasion. So like they had a brief time period where they were not. So they had a brief time period with Canute where they weren't in charge, Anglo-Saxons. Then they came back to power, and then they were like almost not long afterwards, immediately beaten by the Normans, and the Normans took over, and that they became. Um, the rulers. Sir Harold's successor as elected by the surviving English aristocracy was Edgar the Eighthling, who died in 1125, but he never took power and was never crowned. The new Norman dynasty held sway in England for the best part of a century. The Anglo-Saxon language was displaced by French as the official language of the royal court and the legal system. However, books continued to be written in English until into the 12th century and beyond. So it did survive in, in like written down terms, but not in terms of like the language of power. So language of power is always the one that's held used at court in the legal system. Uh, so if you didn't speak French, you were fucked. You were uh, in a bit of merde. Yeah. <laughs> so in the film, at one point. Bowen, and it's only at one point, and it probably it's not really applicable because I'm not necessarily sure Bowen is one of these, but Bowen is referred to as a knight knight errant. So a knight errant is a figure of medieval chivalric romance literature. The adjective errant meaning wandering or roving indicates how the knight errant would wander the land in search of adventures to prove his chivalric virtues, either in knightly jewels or pardons, because most of this comes from French chivalric romance, or in some other pursuit of courtly love. A knight errant is not a knight, but a knight in waiting, a servant or messenger role in liege to a full full knight or prince. The template of the knight errant are the heroes of the round table of the Arthurian cycle, such as Gawain, Lancelot, and Percival. The quest in pursuit of which these knights wander the land is that of the Holy Grail, such as in Percival, the story of the Grail written by Cadigan de Troyes in the 1180s. I am really sorry. <laughs> I haven't done French in a very long time. We're just going with it. Although the character is part of the romance genre as it developed during the late 12th century, the term knight errant itself is younger. From the first recorded, first time recorded in the 14th century poem Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, um, knight errantry tales remain popular with courtly audiences through the late late Middle Ages. They are mainly written in Middle French, Middle English, and in Middle German. So, like it, Draco calls Bowen a knight errant, but he's not really one because he has at that point stopped wandering. And when he was wandering, he was killing dragons. He wasn't doing knightly jewels or doing anything to do with courtly love. He was murdering dragons left and right. <laughs> also, he seems to be a full knight. He's not a knight in waiting. Like he was hired to tutor Aynan, but he's not. Like he presumably he was already a knight before he was hired on to tutor Aynan. The art of war. He seemed pretty skilled. So, like, probably not really a knight errant, but it's a great, it's a great term. It sounds good, errant. Just like it's fun. Errant. That is, it is a fun, fun word to say. So that's just like some good old history stuff to do with the film. Um, we are going to talk a bit about dragons, but not all dragons. We're only going to talk about Western dragons because we're going to save Eastern dragons for another episode. Um, it'd be a shame to blow oil dragons content in one go. Yeah, got to save it, especially on this film. So traditionally, Western dragons were symbolized as evil beings. In Christian mythologies, they are specifically linked to the devil along with serpents and are often depicted as the, as the nemesis of a saint or angel, like St. George. So um, St. George, the story of St. George. Um, so St. George was a knight born in Cappadocia. One time he came to the city of Selene in the province of Libya. Near this city was a pond wherein there was a dragon which was poisoning all the country. Whenever he approached the city, he poisoned the dragon, not like not George. He poisoned the people with his breath and therefore the people of the city gave to him every day two sheep to eat so that he would do no harm to the people. When they ran out of sheep, he was given a man and a sheep. Then an ordinance was made that the children and young people of the town should be chosen by lottery to feed the dragon, which is, it, it sounds sort of dumb to me because like surely you need those children and young people because otherwise you're just going to have a town full of old people and then what are you going to do? No one's going to be able to lift things. The old just always sacrifice the young to keep themselves yeah. alive. Whoever the lot fell upon, wealthy or poor, he or she was delivered to the dragon. 
One time the lot fell upon the king's daughter, and the sorrowful king said to his people, For the love of the gods, take gold and silver and all that I have, but let me have my daughter. They said, Sir, you have made the law, and our children are now dead. But you would do the contrary. Your daughter shall be given, or else we should burn you and your house. Which seems fair. Yeah, I mean, there's a... you got to stick to the law. Can't have one rule for, for one Typical person. Typical classism, isn't it? He's like, oh, but I didn't think it would apply to me. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's like, uh, I didn't think my name was involved. <laughs> then he returned to the people. Uh, seeing that he could do no more, the king began to weep and said to his daughter, now I shall never see you married, because that's the highest thing a woman could aspire to ever do, is be married. Then he returned to the people and asked for eight days respite, which they granted him. When the eight days were passed, they came to him and said, you see, the city is perishing. Then the king had his daughter dressed like a bride, embraced her and kissed her, gave her his blessing, then led her to the place where the dragon was. When she was there, St. George passed by. And seeing the lady, he asked her what he was do- what she was doing there. Just purely by coincidence, he happened to be passing by. And he just seems to be being like, hey. That timing as well. Like, he couldn't do it when a peasant was, it was, when, the, it was when the princess. No, it had to be a princess because... Um, it's all about it's all about the wedding. I think he was there the whole time. I think he t- he was waiting. <laughs> he was waiting. He was waiting for the princess, yeah. as opposed to just walking up to her and being like, "Oh, hey, uh, what are you doing? Dressed as a bride, standing in the middle of this field with bones everywhere. <laughs> do you, do you come here often?" So she said, "Go away, fair young man, lest you perish as well." Then he said, "Tell me why you're weeping." When she when he when she saw that he insisted on knowing, she told him how she'd been delivered to the dragon. Then St. George said, fair daughter, doubt not, for I shall help you in the name of Jesus Christ. She said, for God's sakes, good night, go your way, for you cannot for you cannot save me. While they were thus talking together, the dragon appeared and came running toward them. St. George, who was on his horse, drew his sword, made the sign of the cross, then rode swiftly toward the dragon. He struck them with his spear, injuring the dragon severely. Then he said to the maid, tie your belt around the dragon's neck and be not afraid. When she'd done so, the dragon followed her meekly. She led him into the city and... The people fled in fear. Great idea. It's like, well, if you've got the dragon unleashed, walking him like a dog straight into the heart of the city. <laughs> everyone's like, just like, oh my God, it's a dragon. Just taking my dragon for a walk. Don't mind yep. me. St. George said to them, doubt not, believe in God and Jesus Christ and be baptized and I shall slay the dragon. And if I assume what he means is, and if you don't, I'll just leave it here and let it kill you. Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, not early Christians were not great. Um, then the king and all his people were baptized, whereupon St. George killed the dragon and cut off his head. It took four ox carts to remove his body from the city. Again, I remember that part. A point that I pulled up last time. Yeah, they just, he just left, like he killed the dragon in the city and just left it there. And then they had to remove the body of yep. the dragon. Very uh, inconsiderate. He wouldn't want him as a house guest. No, he'd just leave a dragon head on your table. <laughs> We come in and be like, oh, yeah, no, I killed this thing. And then he just, like, leaves it in your living room. And it's like, oh, well, I did the thing. Like, it's sorry to get blood on the carpet. Imagine but... if, like, an exterminator came into your house and, like, killed all the, like, the bugs or rats or whatever. Just, like, just, just left, left them there <laughs> on the floor. Like, see ya. <laughs> I did what you wanted me to do. I killed them. Um, you can clean it up. <laughs> anyway, super fun. At that time, 15,000 men were baptized, not counting women and children. So, more but they only care about the men, per usual. Uh, the king established a church there in honour of Our Lady and of St. George, in which there flows to this day a fountain of living water that heals the sick who drink from it. The king offered to St. George as much money as he could count, but he refused it, asking instead that it be given to poor people for God's sake, or because he couldn't actually count. So he was like, I better not, because they weren't then they won't know that I can't count past five. <laughs> then he made four requests of the king, that he, the king, should have charge of the churches, that he should honour the priests, that he should hear their service diligently, and that he should have pity on the poor people. Then St. George took his leave of the king and departed. And then there's quite a bit more of the story about how he does other stuff, but, like, it's not that important because he's already done the killing the dragon part. So we're not going to read that. That is the important thing. Yep, he, well, yeah, so he became a saint because of, I assume, the stuff that happens later in the story that we're not covering because it has nothing to do with dragons, and that's what we're here for today. And, yeah, so he kills a dragon because dragons are evil, unequivocally evil. So they're often seen as beasts of greed, guarding towers with imprisoned princesses, raiding innocent towns, and hoarding heaps of gold and treasures. 
These dragons are meant to be confronted and slayed as the ultimate sign of bravery for a hero. Yeah, so it's just like the way that they're, like not necessarily now, but certainly in early like Christian times, dragons were considered evil. But also like as, like for, as evidenced in early Latin bestiaries, they categorized the existence of dragons as though they were real things. So like, for instance, Isidore of Seville wrote in Etymologie, the dragon is the largest serpent, and in fact the largest animal on earth. Its name in Latin is Draco, derived from the Greek dracon. When it comes out of its cave, it disturbs the air. It has a crest, a small mouth, and a narrow throat. Its strength is in its tail rather than its teeth. It does harm by beating, not by biting. It has no poison and needs none to kill, because it kills by entangling. Not even the elephant is safe from the dragon. Hiding where elephants travel, the dragon tangles their feet with its tail and kills the elephant by, by suffocating it. Dragons live in the burning heat of India and Ethiopia. Uh, he also says that dra Dracontites is a stone that is forcibly taken from the brain of a dragon, and unless it is torn from the living creature, it is, has not the quality of a gem, whence magi cut it out of the dragons while they are sleeping. For bold men explore the cave of dragons and scatter their medicated grains to hasten their sleep, and thus cut off their heads while they are sunk in sleep and take out the gems. Well, uh, so, that's some pretty damning evidence right there. Sounds like dragons m might have existed. Because <laughs> they, they have brain gems that yeah, we have never seen. It specifically names India and Ethiopia. That's very specific. <laughs> where, where they have plenty of animals that people of Europe would not be familiar with and could easily mistake for anything else. Look, yeah, you make a good point, but dragons, pretty unmistakable. Sure. All right. <laughs> so Hugh Falloy wrote... Um, the dragon, the greatest of all serpents, is the devil, the king of all evil. So this is what we get into sort of the Christian mythology of them being Satan. Oh boy. Or Satan. So, or as it deals death with its poisonous breath and blow of its tail, so the evil destroys men's souls by thought, word, and deed. He kills their thoughts by the breath of pride. He poisons their words with malice. He strangles them by, by the performance of evil deeds, as it were, with his tail. By the dragon, the air is set in motion, and so is the peace of spiritually-minded people often disturbed in, the, in that way. It lays in wait for the chaste animal, so he persecuted to death Christ the guardian of chastity, being born of a chaste virgin, but he was overcome, having been crushed by him in his death. As for the precious colour which, which is got from the ground, that is the church of Christ adorned by his precious blood, the dragon is the enemy of a pure animal, likewise the devil the enemy of the virgin's son. Uh, so. That's sort of like their stance on dragons. Um, it also is like it, it shows that like dragons, even like they, aside from the fact that dragons aren't real, even when they thought they might be, there was no consensus of what a dragon looked like or what it did. Some say they breathe fire. Some say some say they breathe poison. Some of them say they don't breathe anything. Some of them say they bite. Some of them say they whack with tails. Like yeah, not overly consistent, is it? No, it's not like now where we have like because of the build up of like fantasy. Uh, so like the type of the Western dragons type of popularity in fantasy fiction traces at least all the way back to Fafnir and the Volsunga saga and to Beowulf, which also has a dragon in it. Western dragons, as depicted in contemporary times, are reptilian lizard-like animals with scales covering their bodies, pointy and pointy horns on their heads. They possess six limbs, four legs, two wings, and are large in size. We have that now because we have that buildup of cultural knowledge about. That starts like in like with like Fafnir and like other like the myths of dragons and like the the bestiaries and like the Christian beliefs that dragons are linked to the devil, and then just sort of it, it enters into story and then those stories just stack up over time until we get to something that we all culturally understand as a Western dragon. Makes sense. Everything's got to start somewhere, and in this case, it started with the devil, as many things do. It all comes back to the devil. Um, so we're also going to talk a bit about worm, um, or worms, spot with a Y, if you're wondering, not like, not like garden worms. No, these are the more sinister type yeah. of worms. So worm is a generic old English word, um, used to reference real and fantastic creatures that slither and crawl on or beneath the earth. So that includes the dragon of Beowulf, snakes, spiders, scorpions, maggots, lice, and fleas. Um, they are depicted as, in terms of like the depictions of worms which often adorn like grave furniture and graveyards and things from sort of like anglo-saxon times they are depicted as between dragons and serpents wingless legless and with whining bodies 
so like they tend to be used as decorations and they tend to sort of like they're long so they take up a lot of space and they're very twisty they're specific to sort of like uh, anglo-saxon anxiety so many anglo-saxon texts and images attest to a heightened awareness that the body living and dead is threatened with being eaten at every stage of its existence before the last judgment after which the damned body will continue to be devoured in perpetuity in life these threats may come from creatures of the air so eagles and ravens birds like birds of prey um creatures that walk the earth's surface so like wolves and creatures that slither and crawl on or beneath the soil. And it is last the last of these, the worm, that is most continually linked to the condition of the body and soul in death before after the last judgment. Uh, worms are associated with the concept of an underworld, which is the abode of corpses, decay, and serpents. So um, worm is specifically linked to this idea of, like, the body being devoured after death and the the anxiety that you if you die in so i suppose unclean your soul is devoured remains in your body and is devoured too so like the anglo-saxon poem soul and body is an example of writing which draws on this depiction of worm and sort of discusses that anxiety of like what happens to the body after death and what happens to your soul um so they were sound like a super fun people so like they'd be really great to have a party with yeah, they just be anxious all the time about getting eaten, which is, you know, a vibe, <laughs> I guess. I mean, it's I mean, it's different back then, isn't it? Because like you were, the idea that you would, you might be attacked by a wolf, I guess, was more statistically likely than it is now. That's true. Yeah. Unless you live in like Alaska, I guess. Yeah, sorry, Alaskans. You know, wolf, wolf, uh, death sounds probably a real issue over there. So like. I guess I can understand why they're worried that they'll be eaten. I don't know why they're so concerned with the fact that they'll be eaten after death, because personally that's something that I don't like to think about. It weirds me out a bit that they were writing poems about it, but they were so it was so on their minds that they would be eaten when they died. Yeah, focus on <laughs> they were like, being eaten while you're alive. That seems more important. Well, I'm thinking about both, possibly at the same time. It sounds like <laughs> a lot, to be honest, to go through. Yeah, they don't sound. I don't want to hang with it. But the worm grave furniture is pretty cool. So, like, I can get behind that, but the rest of it, I'm willing to leave. <laughs> yeah, fair. So, the film also sort of briefly discusses immortality, but in a very, like, unframed way. Um, because Ionan is technically immortal because he can't die unless Draco dies because Draco's got the functioning part of the heart. They're linked. They're linked. Um, but Ainan, if you stab Ainan in the heart, he'll be fine because whatever part of the dragon heart he's got is not the part that does the life bit. <laughs> yeah, it's the other part of the heart. <laughs> yeah, I don't, don't, I'm sure we discussed this before, but we don't know how big a dragon heart is. <laughs> and I'm really sad that our audience is going to miss our great discussion of how big a dragon heart is and what would happen if Ainan got the whole dragon heart. <laughs> what happened to his body? It would explode. <laughs> They would absolutely explode. So, yes, Ainan is technically immortal. Um, the usual way to attain immortal immortality in mythology is either to be granted it by the gods, which, I, I mean, I guess sort of is what Ainan gets because Draco is the closest, aside from, like, Christian god, which I guess is a thing in the movie, but it's not a big thing. He's sort of the closest to a, like, mythological called divine figure and he's the one who gives the heart so i guess that's how he gets it but the other way is by con consumption of an immor immortality giving material so in chinese mythology the queen mother of the west wife to the jade emperor is the owner of the elixir of immortality and the divine peaches that can grant longevity to those who eat them so they the elixir of immortality and the divine peaches each have two different like have different stories associated with them so for the elixir of immortality the main story is um, about the hero Hori and Chunga. So Hori was a was like a hero, Chinese like folk law hero. Um, he asked for the elixir from the queen mother, and she gave it to him. But then Chunga, who was his wife, who would become the moon goddess, but was started as the wife of Hori, stole it and flew to the moon. So there's different versions of like why she stole it and. She always ends up on the moon. She always becomes a goddess of the moon, but there's different, like, motivations behind 
why she did what she did. So in some stories, Chung'e took the elixir out of selfish desire to become immortal, which I can grant. Who doesn't want to do that, I guess? Yeah, understandable. I just got my 7,000 steps, but um, I haven't been stepping, so I think it's been counting my hand gestures. Working hard on this podcast right here. In so yeah, so took it out of selfish desire, or sometimes it's because someone else tried to steal it, and in order to keep it safe, she swallowed it. Because in some cases, it's not like a potion; it's like a pill. So she put the pill in her mouth to hide it, but then swallowed it, came a water. Or the other one is, which I sort of like less because I really like the film Over the Moon on Netflix and Hoi Yi and Chang'e being in like a nice relationship, but in Another story, it's to prevent Hoi becoming immortal because he had become a cruel and tyrannical king after his hero deeds had sort of um, finished and he'd been rewarded. He became a king and he became tyrannical because that's what happens with kings, I guess. It happens. As we can see in this film. You you have you, you get power, you become a tyrant. Yep. You People bring you down. Stories all the time. Your wife steals your elixir of immortality and goes to the moon. Just rude. Um, so in the mythical novel Journey to the West, which I haven't read just to preface this, but I have looked into this um, in my book of Chinese mythology, so I guess it's that's the second best thing. The Queen Mother often invited other immortals and gods to banquet to eat her divine peaches. So these peaches had three levels of power, so one one type ripened every 3,000 years and could make a person who ate it healthy, one ripened every 6,000 years and could give longevity, and the last one ripened every 9,000 years and the person could give the person who ate it um, a life as long as heaven and earth, which it seems like a very long time. So essentially immortal. Um, so according to the book I have, in the novel, the Monkey King eats all the peaches in an act of defiance and then is banished from heaven. Cheeky. Yeah, che- well, he is the Monkey King. He He's is a the Monkey King, yeah. But also, I bet those peaches just tasted so damn good. I'm sure they did. Um, yeah, so I, I, met, I imagine that also really sort of fucked up uh, all the people who were going to the banquet with the Queen Mother to, you know, renew their immortality. Yeah. I guess they were like, what are we going to do? Yeah, they were probably like, damn it, this is my last chance. Damn that monkey king. <laughs> now I'm not going to be as immortal as I was before. Slightly less immortal is not <laughs> as, as mortal as I'd like to be. <laughs> In Greek mythology, there is ambrosia and there's also nectar. So ambrosia was considered the food or drink of the Olympian gods. And it was thought that it to bring long life and immortality to anyone who consumed it. Uh, the thing about nectar and ambrosia is that no one really knows which one they ate and which one they drank or which one actually gave the long life and immortality. I say that as if like ambrosia and nectar were a real thing, but like, <laughs> like they don't know which was food and which was drink, but they're basically interchangeable. But um, either way, the gods consumed it. Um, and then the idea was that ambrosia could only be consumed by deities. So when um, Heracles achieved immortality, Athena offered him ambrosia, but while, um, which, and then like, in another myth, when Tantalus tried to steal some to give to other mortals, he was punished for committing hubris. So whoever consumed... So the ambrosia is like a fully a material that only gods can consume because of what it does to you in terms of granting long life and immortality. And immortality is something that is only for the gods. Um, so whoever consumed ambrosia no longer had blood in their veins, but had another substance called ichor, or ichor, um, which is not blood, but some form of life-giving force that also in this case grants immortality and i bet if you could make a god bleed a greek god bleed it would probably look fucking cool probably be really pretty um like all the colors of the rainbow yeah something like something crazy like that <laughs> but yeah so that's what they that's what they got one of the myths about achilles's immortality has it that his mother thetis anointed him with ambrosia when he was born and then passed him through the flames of her hearth so that the mortal elements of his body would be consumed. However, Peleus, his father, found out and stopped her. This caused Thetis to rage, and she left without managing to immortalize Achilles's heel. As a result, this was the only vulnerable spot left on his body. So that sounds fun in terms of, like, I mean, it sort of sounds like some of it sounds sort of okay, like the idea that she rolled him in, like, ambrosia, which I imagine is sort of like being rolled in honey, and then she 
passed him through the flames, which sounds less fun. Yeah. Sort of like, not sure you want to baste your baby, um, even for immortality. It just seems like that could go wrong. Nice uh, ambrosia glaze. <laughs> ambrosia glaze, baby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I don't don't love that. I would much prefer to eat a peach than it's the uh, best one so far. Anything else so far. Love love a good immortality peach. Um in Arthurian legend there is the Holy Grail, the cup believed to have been used by Jesus Christ during the Last Supper. It is also said to grant immortality to those who drink from it. Legends hold that the Grail has the power to heal all wounds, deliver eternal youth, and grant everlasting happiness. In terms of like sources for that, there's not I couldn't find any like sort of I mean, I, I wasn't going to scour the Bible <laughs> for references to the Holy Grail because I'm not an insane person. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't look too hard for the sources. But it, I don't. Is that why? Is that why the Templars want it in the Templars? Is like, what? Is that why everyone wants the Holy Grail? I sh- like. It seems like a good deal. I can imagine. But I thought they just wanted it because it was a really good cup. Jesus had it. <laughs> yeah, the Templars see it as a symbol, but everyone else is like, it's got actual powers. It's weird. Yeah. I assume that's why the Nazis wanted it in the Last Crusade as well for the immortality. Yeah. What about? Um. I assume that's why. Is is it part? Of, the Holy Grail is that part of um those dumb novels that Mum hates, but the movies that I love with Tom Hanks. Uh, is the Da Vinci Code? Da Vinci movie. Code. I don't know if the that's in the Da Vinci Code. Mm. I'm just remembering oh. Jesus's secret wife. Oh yeah, that's the second movie. Or maybe it has like a mention in that. I'm not sure yeah, if they maybe. believe the same thing. <laughs> but um, in in terms of like what it does, like if they're perpetuating that myth, but um, apparently that's what it can do. So I can I can see why people were like, yes, the Holy Grail, I want it. <laughs> I just thought they were like, that's a cup that Jesus used. So like we should get that because we want relics. A religious relic. Yeah. Well, yeah. Exactly. Because. That churches loved those. They like to collect things. So yeah, that's I just assumed it was that. But apparently immortality. So like now I understand the appeal much more. Um because you only have to drink from the cup. Like you don't have to do anything else. You can like, drink you just... whatever you want as well. You yeah, can drink you some can... Gatorade. I was gonna say you can pour some ribena in there. Some ribena, the blood of Christ, you know. Immortality ribena. <laughs> I'd take a sip of that. Immortality Gatorade. It'd be great. <laughs> uh so Lastly, in terms of like immortality giving materials, is um, the well, I suppose what is called the elixir of life, but it, I suppose it's not really an elixir. So, um, medieval alchemists sought to create this elusive elixir of life, and Nicholas Flamel, lately of Harry Potter fame, is reputed to have succeeded in this endeavor. So, from the Middle Ages to the late 17th century, the so called Philosopher's Stone was the most sought-after goal in the world of alchemy, which is the medieval ancestor of chemistry, sort of, not really. According to legend, the Philosopher's Stone was a substance that could turn ordinary metals, in, such as tin, such as iron, tin, lead, zinc, nickel, or copper, into precious metals like gold or silver. It also acted as an elixir of life. I don't know how. Like I, Did it I know it's just a legend. Life to I, yeah, I, gold. See, that's the thing. It does two very different things. I know it's a legend. I know it's not real. But like, one, it turns materials into other materials, but like specifically gold and silver, specifically metals. Two, it can cure illness and grant you youth. And I just that just. It's like if some if if a rock could do two things, that's a very <laughs> weird specific two things that it can do. And how do yeah. you? There's not like a switch or anything. <laughs> I just love the way you started that sentence. If a rock could do two things. So funny. Uh, like, like, preposterous that a rock would be able to do two things. Everyone knows rocks can only do one. You just throw them at stuff. That's all they're good for. Yeah, it is a very specific two things for them to do. And you're right, there's no... But we don't know it's a stone. It's just a substance. Like, it could, so that's what I mean. Like, it's a substance. That just says to me, like, oh, yes, it can turn stuff to gold and silver. But also give me youth. That says someone's thought they've made the philosopher's stone but actually they've just been ingesting lots of mercury and now they're going crazy <laughs> oh boy. and that's to be honest that's probably what it was it's probably accurate yeah um so yeah it also acted as an elixir of life with the power to cure illness renew the properties of youth and even grant immortality to those who possessed it the, the philosopher's stone may not have been a stone at all but a powder or other type of substance see it's just mercury <laughs> It was famous. It was variously known as the tincture, the powder, or the materia prima. In their quest to find it, alchemists examined countless substances in their laboratories, mercury, building a base of knowledge that would spawn the fields of chemistry, pharmacology, and metallurgy. 
probably Mercury. Like, it's just probably Mercury. Now, now we get to the other wild part, which is Nicolas Flamel himself. So Nicolas Flamel was a French bookseller and notary who lived in Paris during the 14th and early 15th centuries. You see that sentence? There is no indication that he was also an alchemist. Secret He alchemist. was a book, bookseller and notary. <laughs> in 1382, Flamel claimed to have transformed lead into gold after decoding an ancient book of alchemy with the help of a Spanish scholar familiar with the mystic Hebrew text known as the Kabbalah. So, like, not off to a great start. Whether this was true or not, the historical records show that Flamel did come into a... Con- con- I just love this as whether this is true or not. It's not true. There's, There's a no mystery. Such- there's no such thing as the philosopher's stone. But whether this is true or not, the historical record shows that Flamel did come into a considerable wealth around this time and donated his riches to charity. That's nice. Yeah, it is nice, but he definitely didn't get it because he was turning fucking zinc into gold. I mean, did a special he, powder. Did he die? Because that's, uh, yeah. that's oh, the yeah. short, if he did die, then he didn't have it, right? Like, Well, it said it could grant... Could even grant mythology immortality, but again, like we said, how do you get the stone to do two different things? Maybe, Maybe he only figured he out the first setting. He could only he could... figure out how to, yeah, how to make it into gold. He couldn't figure out how to the rest of it. He couldn't figure out how to change it to the second setting. <laughs> or he was just like he had a mint, a secret mint, and he was just minting gold, just making himself. his own gold. Yeah, he is the stone. <laughs> um. But yes, I'm pretty. I, I I mean, unless the records are lying and he's covered it up really well, I'm pretty sure Nicholas Mel did in fact die. So well, there you have it. take with that what, what you will. Um, so that's all the out of all the ways the materials you could possibly ingest. Or I guess if it's a powder, you could sprinkle the philosopher's stone on yourself. I'm not sure how it works. Uh, what what would you go for, Morgan? Still the the divine peaches. All of the peaches. Peaches yeah. for me, yeah. Peach all the way. Would you would you start with like the three thousand year old peach, or would you like just go straight to the nine thousand year old? I mean, peach? you got to work your way up. Surely they get better. It's like a tasting session. You're like, mm, that was good. All right. Uh, then you have like a you reset your palate, and then you have the next one. You're like, oh, that's good. Uh, um, longevity tastes delicious. Yeah, I mean, I, I would probably just go straight for the nine thousand year old peach, just in case, like. Like the three thousand and six thousand year old peaches are not ripe at the same time as the nine thousand year old peach. But like, you just think if you had all of them at the same time, you—that's the best you're gonna feel. Oh, obviously. Like the best you're but gonna like, feel. If ever. that's not an option, you'd you'd hope that you were able to get a nine thousand year old peach in the time that a nine thousand year old peach ripened, because otherwise you're getting a three thousand year old peach. But it's just making you healthy, so you're not going to live to get to the to the six thousand year old peach that That's will give true. you longevity. That's true. And then you're going to need more six thousand year old peaches to get to the nine thousand year. Well, old it just depends how. I'm sure they 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 cultivated enough so they have all the options available. What it'd be the uh, terrible orchard if they didn't. Yeah. But yes, I would also probably go for the peach. Um, I just I just think an immortality peach would taste delicious. Um, it doesn't, and it doesn't replace my blood with anything weird. So mm, mm, that would be nice. That's true. All right, and with that, we have come to the end of this episode. Once again, well done. We made it through twice. What a day. So we come back to worldview, which used to be called philosophy, but is now called extra thoughts because usually by the time I get to this point, I'm not in the mood to philosophize on anything. (laughs) I'm just in a mood to say stuff. So here's the stuff I'm going to say today. Monarchies do not usually work on the principle of best man for the job, but this is fantasy, so it's fine. So Bowen is not of royal blood. He has no claim to the throne at all, as far as I can tell. But he is the best man for the job, so therefore he gets the crown, even though there is no reason for anyone to give it to him. There's no really no one left, right? Like... Well, I mean, Einan didn't have any exactly. children. Exactly. To pass it to, but I'm sure he had cousins. That's true. The queen, the queen could have taken the crown yeah, again. Yeah, by marriage. Maybe. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. You make a point. So like, they were just like, "No, fuck it. Bowen can take it. I'm done. <laughs> we're all out. We're <laughs> done." Also, it just seems like I know it's I know it's a film and I know it has a plot, but also like peasants for Bowen, you're being a dick. So like, I didn't should have thought of that. I think it's a good like it's a good way to keep if you're if you're uh, if you're a king, right? Like keep pay attention to how the the peasants are feeling because that's really like a good barometer of like, are they if they're going to rebel? Maybe but I should do a better job. Having said that, um, peasants have always rebelled in history as well, and usually it's because the king is being a dick. And here's the thing about being the king: um, kings always think they can do whatever they want. 
and they do exactly that. So, like, even when peasants rebel, they're just like, fuck it, get me an army, and I'll kill them all, and then I'll go back to doing what I want. So, like, yes, you're being a dick if your peasants rebel, but also, like, if you're a peasant, rebelling generally doesn't well end well for you. So, like, what are you going to do? Um, but Einan, yeah, Einan should have just been, like, a little bit of introspection and be like, if I wasn't such a turd, would people stop trying to assassinate me? And the answer is probably yes. Yeah, you could have reigned forever. Forever, yeah. He, he he agitated them so much they decided that they would literally... Bowen decided he would kill his friend, the dragon, the last dragon ever, so that way Ainan would go away. Yeah. So, like, that says that Ainan's at fault here. It's all his fault. Um, and also... Uh, from just a just one of my favorite bits from the film contender for the harshest line ever said from my mother to her son and i'm gonna say it again i said it last time when we record the podcast it never gets old aislin says so good i'm trying to correct a mistake i made years ago when i saved a creature not worth saving so good so So cold so good so good he wasn't worth saving you're right creature yeah. not man no some he's writer terrible. wrote that line and then quit then and moved like, on to a bigger project they're like i'm done but by like they're like I'm, I'm just done like i'm not working anymore today <laughs> I'm, just, I'm too good and of course and then last time he did a very good impression of ramus lupin's voice whatever his name is david julis one with his lion in return that's not very motherly of you. Oh, yeah. Such a good exchange. Love that. Anyway, on that line, it's time to end um, and correct the mistake of making this podcast. Yeah. Uh, hopefully this episode was everything the original was, but we'll never know. So, you know, deal with it. Um, uh, I know Finn doesn't really have any recommendations, but, you know, check out the movie. And, you know, How to Train Your Dragon, that's a good book and movie series. Check that out, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. All right. That's all I got. Yeah, I don't have anything. I'm playing like AC Valhalla. <laughs> check it. Check out Assassin's Creed Valhalla. We say it a lot, but you know why not? Um, and yeah, uh, thank you for doing all the research and presenting this to us, Finn. Thank you. Thank you for putting up with this a second time. We'll be welcome <laughs> to you. Yep, go me. Uh, we will be back in another month. So see you then. Bye. Bye. <laughs>